0: Thank you guys so much. Thank you for your your welcome to me and to my family and and my friends who've come to gather here as well. Thank you guys so much. And those that are at home that are part of this project. Jimmy is very humble as a pastor. We were in the class together. Jimmy was the teacher of the class. And so we learned so much together. We did learn together, but it was a blessing to be under his teaching as, as I know you guys are appreciative to be taught by him here. Um, It has been a blessing to be a part of this Philemon Project. When did we start? Back in March, talking about this together. Um, and, And last week, Jimmy got us off to a great start in a message that he called the gospel as framework. And there, do you remember the points of that? You guys remember at home the points that he made. As we talk about the gospel, it is not Jesus plus justice. But rather, what did we say? It's Jesus, therefore, justice, and Jesus, grace, justice. And so, today, in terms of the topic, where we go is looking at the book of Philemon in light of the Old Testament context. And so, if you think of the Apostle Paul who wrote Philemon, what Bible was he using? He's using the Old Testament. And so how would he, he write to Philemon? What was, what was undergirding the things that he wrote about? It was the Scriptures from the Old Testament. And so I'm actually, I, I called this message The God Who Sees, Hears, and Knows. The God Who Sees, Hears, and Knows. And primarily will be in Exodus chapter 2, the end of Exodus 2, going into Exodus chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. And there's also a um, It's also printed in your bulletin. I'm going to have Jordan come up and read the text in a moment. But um, just to tell you, just to set the context, Exodus 2 comes at the time after the Israelites are in Egypt, and Joseph has died, and a Pharaoh has come who doesn't know Joseph so well. And the Israelite people end up becoming enslaved, and they are enslaved for 400 years. They're crying out to God to deliver them, and he doesn't answer. Does anybody know what that feels like, to cry out to God day after day and year after year, and yet you feel like he's not answering? Well, finally, when we come to the passage that we're looking at today, God answers. God has raised up a deliverer named Moses, who has been away in exile because Moses tried to deliver in his own way, and it didn't work. And now he comes, and God brings him back to lead the deliverance that God's bringing about for his people in slavery. And so Jordan's gonna read that beginning with Exodus two.
1: Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter two, verse 23 to chapter three, verse 12. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for the rescue from slavery came up to God And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. On this mountain. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Jordan. Let's go to God together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God. It testifies about itself that it's living and active, it's sharper than a double edged sword. And Lord, we thank you for that because that means that you're able through your word to get to our hearts, our thoughts, our attitudes, our minds. You're able to get beneath the surface and to deal with us. And so we are grateful for that. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in this place and in all the places where we're gathered online to watch. And we pray that you would help us understand these words that we read. Some of them are hard. Some of them are hard to understand, but we pray that you'd help us. And we pray not only that, we also pray that you would fill us with your power so that we would walk in light of the things that we read about, We don't want what happens here to just stay here. But we want it to be felt in our own lives, in the lives of the people around us and in the communities around us. And so we're asking for all of this right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I wonder, let me ask you, does the Bible have anything to say about issues of race and justice? Does the Bible have anything to say about some of the things that are headlines in our day around these issues? Does the Bible have anything to say? Well, actually, you know what? The writers or the editors of what's called the Slave Bible believe that it does, believe that it did. I don't know if I'm doing that right. Do I turn that on? All right. There's actually three copies of what's called the Slave Bible or the Negro Bible that are found in the world, and I actually have a photocopied version of that here. And it was put together by missionaries and slave owners, and because the people thought, you know, we want our slaves to know the Lord, we need to give them the Word of God, we need the Bible, but they thought there might be some things in this book that would cause them to think about rebelling, that would maybe have them think that what we're doing is unjust. And so what they did is they took chapters out of this bible and they gave that and they called it the slave bible and so actually there's a a table of contents in here that tells you the percentage of, of what they actually removed from that bible and so the book of genesis as an example how many chapters are in genesis 50 and so in the slave bible there's actually 14 chapters in genesis how about the book of exodus right? There's 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, but in the slave Bible, you know how many chapters there are? Two. Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. All of the whole story of being freed from slavery is taken out. All of the Psalms are gone. All of the book of Lamentations, most of the minor prophets, actually 90% of the Old Testament is not there and 50% of the New Testament, including Philemon, it's not there, the book of Revelation is not there in the slave Bible. And as you think about that, that is actually a great affirmation of the Word of God and that it does speak to these very issues. Now actually, as you read through that slave Bible, actually, they didn't take out enough because there's still a lot here to be able to make the case That what you're doing is wrong because you're mistreating people that are made in the image and likeness of God. And so that's hopeful for us as we think about that, as we're thinking about it, in light of the Old Testament context today. What do we learn from the Old Testament that helps us to be able to lean into these issues, not only as we're trying to understand Philemon, right? But also as we're trying to figure out how do we live these things out in our own time? We hear and see there's so many other people speaking to these things, but what does the Word of God have to say to the people of God about how we step into them? And so what do we learn from this passage today? We learn about our God, that he is the God who sees, he's the God who hears, and he is the God who knows. So there's two things, just two points today that we want to look at. I don't know if I'm doing this right. Did I turn it on? Did that work? There we go. Maybe I should have you. Would you check that for me? Thank you. Okay. I'll Thank you. Oh, there we go. Thank you. And so there's two things that we want to look at, mainly from Exodus, but from some other passages as well. And those things are the character of God and the call of God. The character of God and the call of God. Let's start with the very character of God. And listen, that that is an exhaustive subject. There is a lot we could say about the character of God. And so we're going to just limit it to just three things that we want to look at from this passage that tell us about God's character. And so we'll look at the heart of God. We'll look at the faithfulness of God. And then finally, we'll look at the power of God and see how they speak to these things. So what do we learn about the character of God? Well, first, the heart of God comes out as we look in these verses. I don't know if you heard that, but listen in verses 23. It said, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And it tells you that because maybe the people are thinking, wait a minute, there's a change in administration. So that means things are going to be different for us, right? Maybe people are thinking about that now, but not so. It said, and the people of Israel groaned. Why? Because of their slavery. They cried out for help. And it says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24 And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard. God saw and God knew the suffering that the people were going through. And if you keep reading in chapter 3, when he talks to Moses, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Those things are there in that verse. Again, he heard, he saw, he knew. And then finally, verse 9 and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, have all, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. This is the heart of God. And so we say, well, wait a minute, is that just the heart of God for his people? Right, because this is talking about the people of God. But as we look elsewhere, we, we notice it's not just for the people of God, but people who are suffering. Here's a verse from Psalm 68 that describes the very character of God, part of who God is, God's heart, not just for his own people, but for all people who are suffering. It says, God is a father to the fatherless, and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Here's a verse from Deuteronomy 10. The Lord Lord, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bride. And then listen to this. It says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner or the alien, giving him food and clothing. Do you know who the only person is in the Bible who gives God a name? Do you know who it is? As you're reading through the Old Testament, there's lots of times when God shows up and appears, and there are people that name the places, right? They'll say, this is the place that God showed up, and so we're going to name it such and such. But there's only one person that has the great honor of giving God a name. You know who it is? It's Hagar. In Genesis chapter 16, Hagar was an Egyptian slave. And all of a sudden, God cares for her as she runs away, and she thinks that her life is over. And God says, I see you. I care for you. Where have you come from? Where are you going? And she names that place. This is the place where I've met the God who sees. I have been seen by the God who sees me. Maybe some of you come today and you feel like there's nobody that sees me, right? There's nobody that knows the troubles that I've seen. But here we see the heart of our God that maybe nobody else sees, but God does. Maybe you feel like an outcast. God sees you. God hears you. God cares about who you are. Maybe you're at home, and maybe the reason you're at home is not because of COVID. But you think, I'm not worthy. I I can't go to church. I can't be there until I clean myself up. I'm too far out. God doesn't care about me. He doesn't see me. But what we see in the character of God is the very heart of God. God absolutely sees you, and he hears you, and he knows you. That is his heart. Now, a doctrine that's undergirding this, I'm not going to talk about a lot because Luke Bobo is going to preach about this when he's going to talk about the image of God, the Imago Dei. He's going to talk about that a lot more, but that's undergirding what we see. This is the heart of God. And so Onesimus, who we read about in Philemon, he benefits from that. God sees him. But even as we think about slaves in our own country from we read from this Bible, God saw them. In fact, many of the Negro spirituals, they're written with that in mind. They go, wait a minute, there is a God, in spite of what we're going through, who sees and hears and knows. This is his heart. But what else do we see about God? Not only do we see the heart of God, but we also see here the faithfulness of God. If you go on to verse 24 again, It said that God heard their their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Now, does that mean that God had forgotten? Is God just like our nutty uncle that he's like, oh, no, I forgot all about this covenant? What does it mean that God remembered? God didn't forget. It means that God is deciding now is the time to activate the promises that I've made. Now is the time to fulfill the promises that I had made long ago. If you go back a little bit in Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants or slaves there. And they'll be afflicted 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so God is faithful. God remembered the word that he'd made. And so what does that mean for us? What's the good news about God's faithfulness? Well, one thing it means is that God promises to bring healing to all of our suffering. God promises a time where there'll be no more tears and no more crying and no more mourning and no more death and no more pain. Think about the things that cause you to weep today. There is coming a time for the people of God when those very things will be no more. And then you say, well, I wish he would hurry up. Well, one of the other things we see about God and his faithfulness is he's also present with us in the midst of that suffering. i give you an example. Do you think, you you know Paul's conversion on that Damascus road? Do you remember when the bright light shines upon him and he says, Saul, Saul, it's Jesus, why are you persecuting me? Now, who was Saul persecuting? The church. But what does Jesus say? He says, why do you persecute me when you persecute them? You're persecuting me. When they suffer, I suffer. Because they are my people. And Paul would become one of those very people. And so he says that to you today. He says that to Onesimus. He said that to the African American slaves and all the other slaves around the world right now. God is faithful and He's with you. Now, the last thing we've seen the heart of God and the faithfulness of God. One more thing is the power of God. If you look in verse 8, when the Lord is talking with Moses of chapter 3, God says, I have come down to do what? To deliver them. So God's power, when I talk about his power, it's not just that he has this power and he's like a workout warrior. You can see how much he benches. He just wants to show off how much power he has. When it says that God has power, God does something with his power. He has power to deliver. And that's what he says. To bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Not only does God have a heart that sees and hears and knows his people in their suffering, but he has power to be able to deliver them. And we see that as we keep reading through the book of Exodus. And we think he did that. He displayed that power in Phrygonesimus. And we know finally after many, many hundreds of years, he did that with slavery in our own country. God is able, the Bible says, to do immeasurably more than all we might ask or imagine according to what? His power that's actually at work within us, within his people. But maybe you say, well, if God is able to do that, why doesn't he? Why didn't he? Why did he take so long? Why did it take 400 years then? Why did it take so long in our own country? Why did it take so long with Onesimus? I don't know. I don't know the the answer to that, to why God in his sovereignty chose that timing or why he even chooses that now. But there are a couple things I do know. One thing is this, is that God is able to take the things that Satan has meant in our lives for good, for evil. Rather, And he's able to turn those things around for his good. Where do I get that from? The story of a slave in the Bible, Joseph, in Genesis 50. He looks back on his own suffering and his own enslavement. And God brings him to the point where he's able to say, God did this. God brought me here to save lives. And God is able to continue to do that. But I also know this. In terms of God's power, God's power is made perfect or made complete in weakness. Do you remember the Apostle Paul pleading with God? He, he relates this to deliver him from whatever it is that's his thorn in the flesh. Do you know what it's like to pray and pray and pray for something and, you, and, and God doesn't answer, at least not the way that you want? Well, Paul went through that and he got an answer. You know what God's answer was? No. No. No, I'm not going to take it away. Why not? Because I want you to understand that my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so then Paul is able to say, well, I'll take it then. If I can have more of Jesus, then it's all right. I will boast in my weaknesses because it means that I get more of him. And so here we see in the character of God, we see the heart of God and the faithfulness of God and the power of God. Let's go to the other thing, and that is the call of God. And what I mean by that is the call of God on his people. The call of God on his people, and and particularly thinking about his people in the Old Testament. And there's three aspects of that that I want to bring out, and that is that God calls us to himself. He calls us, secondly, to serve Him. And then He calls us to be a kingdom of priests. He calls us to Himself. He calls us to serve. And He calls us to be a kingdom of priests. Let's look at those things in turn. First, He calls us to Himself. Let me ask you this is a little bit of a trick question. How do the Ten Commandments start? You're thinking with number one, right? No, that's not actually how they start. How do they start? Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then it says, you shall have no other gods before me. So how do they start? They don't start with the first commandment. They start with who God is and what God has done that God has redeemed you from slavery. That is your identity as a people made by God and redeemed by God. A people called first and foremost to God himself. You say, is that just true for the people in the Old Testament? Well, no, actually it's true for those in the New. This is from Titus chapter 2. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then listen to how it describes what he did. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession a people of his very own, who are zealous for good works. Do you remember? That's what Jimmy preached last week. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus therefore, and it's Jesus grace, justice. I've called you to be my people so that you can demonstrate my grace and justice to the world. So that hasn't changed Old Testament or New Testament. That's still... Who we are. And so God calls us to himself. But secondly, not only that, the call of God is a call to serve him. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. The Lord says to Moses, and and this is a collective call on all the people of God. He says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You are servants in Egypt, but now you're being freed so that what? You can be servants of God. That's the call of God. We're we're his servants. And that's not just true collectively. It's also true for us individually. Let's look back at Moses' call for a minute. Look at what God said to him just a couple verses before that. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel, excuse me, out of Egypt. That was the call that he put on Moses' life. And how did Moses respond to that call? Moses was like, not me. It's got to be somebody else. Why is that? Maybe Moses was thinking about his own failure from the past. Because earlier Moses tried to be a deliverer in his own way, in his own power, and he failed miserably. Anybody ever feel like that? You're wondering, I don't know how God can use me. Don't you know what I've done? Well, here is a murderer, kind of like Paul in the New Testament, that God redeems and that God is going to use to bring about his deliverance, to serve him. Now, I love the thing that he says. The Lord says, Moses, I'm going to give you a sign. Do you remember what the sign is? After you you take my people out of Egypt, you're going to worship God on this mountain. Now, Moses could have said, wait a minute, a sign, I don't think you understand what a sign is, Lord. A sign is I want to guarantee before I step out that what I'm going to do is going to be successful. And the Lord says, here's your sign, Moses. Oops. I'm going to kick over a plant. No, he says, here's your sign, Moses. After you do what I've called you to do, you're going to worship me on this mountain. And so you've got to step out in faith in advance. So it's a call not only to himself, but it is a call to serve God. And lastly, Exodus 19, it's a call to be a kingdom of priests. What do I mean by that? What does it say here? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God speaking to the Israelites. And then he says, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That is their call. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? It means that you are honored servants, right? You're called to serve, but you are a kingdom and you are priests. You have this amazing honor. And you represent to all the world what God is like. And you say, well, man, that was a great honor for them. But you know what Peter says in 1 Peter? He takes these same terms and he applies them to the people of God in the New Testament and for all time. Because he says, listen, you all are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And what he's doing is taking those, just that description right there. And he's applying it to the New Testament people and saying, that's what you are. You are the kingdom of priests, the honored servants who are called to demonstrate to the world what God is like. Well, what did that look like? Particularly, and let's zero in for a second. What did it look like in regards to slavery for the Israelites in the Old Testament? What did it look like for them to be a kingdom of priests when it talks about just that topic. But one of the things you find as you look at and and you compare, because they had slavery in the Near East when the Israelites were were living. But you find out that the Israelites are called to treat that institution and the people within it in a radically different way than everybody else. In other words, they're supposed to treat so-called slaves as people and not property. How do I say that? There's just a few verses I printed out. There's a lot more that I could look at, but I just want to look at a few to show some of the difference. Here's one from Exodus 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? What is that saying? Anybody who takes somebody else, kidnaps them and makes them slaves. The penalty for that is death. Why why does he say that? Because they're made in the image and likeness of God. And so their lives are every bit as valuable as everybody else. They're not three-fifths of a man or whatever other percentage people want to say. And so the same penalty exists for those who would take the life of another, for those who would enslave another. Well, then it goes on. When you buy a Hebrew slave, they put a limit on it. Now, I forgot to say this. Why is it that people would become slaves in the Old Testament? What was it based on? It wasn't based on their race or where they were from. There were really two main causes. Either one, they would be a prisoner of war. Or two, they had an incredible debt that they had to repay. And the only way to pay it back is to become someone's servant, to get enough to pay it back. But even then, they put limits on it. They says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, they shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go free for nothing. It's not supposed to be this perpetual institution. It's supposed to be canceled debt so that they can go free again. It's supposed to be different in the lives of the Israelites. One more example. It says, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you and in your midst and in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. What is that saying? That's saying if somebody's enslaved and they run away, you're not supposed to take them back. You're supposed to have a place for them. That was radically different from everybody else. The other nations would kill you for harboring a slave, but the Israelites are called to take them in and to provide. And so they're called to a radically different approach. What am I saying? They're called to a going above and beyond, a going above and beyond in how they treat people in this institution and how they treat the institution itself. They're saying, here's what everybody else does. Our call is to go above and beyond what everybody else does. All right, now let's apply that to the New Testament. And then to us, a few verses from Philemon. I'm gonna read then, we're almost done. Or Philemon, it says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough, this is Paul in Christ, to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus. Who's he appealing for? I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Not the slave Onesimus, but my child in the Lord and your brother, whose father I became in my imprisonment. It goes on, it says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And then we'll talk more about this as we go on, but look at this how he's saying, I want you to have him back, no longer as a slave or bondservant, but more than a bondservant, more than a slave, but as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and the Lord. One more verse. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I say. And so he, what Paul is saying is we are called, people of God, to go above and beyond what everybody else does. And so let's bring that to now. Let's bring that to our own time. What will it mean for us to go above and beyond now in this context? In, order, in, in, in other words, to not just go to do and say, what's the least required that I have to do so I won't be considered a racist? Right, isn't that the question that we ask oftentimes? What's the, what do I have to do so you won't consider me that? It means that we have to go beyond just trumpeting one political party or another political party, but we go beyond to speaking prophetically to both. Whatever the party is, we speak and we live in a way that is prophetic, that's not in bed with either one. But that speaks prophetically to both and calls them to live according to a different value, a different value system, to go above and beyond. Do you remember in the Good Samaritan story, the expert in the law says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And and who's my neighbor? Right? He's like, what's the least amount I have to do to still be able to get an A on the test? But what did the Samaritan do in that story? He's not saying what's the least I can do, but what's the most I can do. He's like, if there's anything extra, I'll give you more when I come back. He goes above and beyond. What will that look like for us? Kids, what will that look like with your classmates? What will that look like with the ones that nobody else wants to sit with? Well, now we can't sit with anybody, right? It's COVID, but I mean normally. Right? What would that look like? What will it look like to address some of the disparities that we see in every city, not just Atlanta, not just St. Louis or Kansas City? What will that mean? What will that look like for us to go above and beyond in our relationships? I appreciate you all so much in that you're willing to do this series. Man, that's crazy. Did y'all know that this was happening? You did praise God that you're willing to step into that, that you're not leaving, that you're not exiting the conversation, but you're saying, I want to know what can we do, what can I do to go above and beyond? Because that's what it looks like, people of God, to be the kingdom of priests that God has called us to. This is the call of God. It's a call to himself. It is a call to serve him, and it is a call to be his kingdom and priests. And this flows out of the very character of God. It flows out of the heart of God. It flows out of the faithfulness of God and it's totally dependent on the very power of God, the one who sees and who hears and who knows. He's calling us to live in light of this, in this this place. Maybe you're here and you say, well, how in the world am I supposed to do that? (laughs) Because I'm tired. I'm weary what about when I fail what about when I don't know what to do anymore how am I going to endure how am I going to keep going how am I going to have power you don't get it from yourself many of you already have been brought to the end of yourself so you know that you find it through the one true good Samaritan Jesus Christ Why do you say that? He's the one who is the very epitome of the character of God. Where do you most of all see the heart of God? Oh, where do we most of all see the faithfulness of God? Where do we most of all see displayed the very power of God in Jesus Christ? And who is the one who makes us able to be able to answer the call to God himself? Who is the one who said, who didn't come to be served? but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is the one who is at the same time the king of kings and the great high priest? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we do this fixing our eyes continually on him. And I'm going to close with this. I'm really going to end. I'm really going to close, right? Sometimes the preacher tells you they're going to close and they have like three or four closes. But this is the last one. There's a time when Dr. Martin Luther King realized this for himself. And he talks about this experience. He talked about getting tired and weary and all of these things, ready to give up, ready to quit. And he talked about this experience he had where God came and met him in one of those discouraging times. It's in a sermon that's called Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. It's on Luke chapter 12. And at the very end, he talks about this experience of one night he gets a call where his life is being threatened and the lives of his family are being threatened. And he's ready to give up. He's ready to quit. And he's calling on God. He's saying, God, please, the people need me to keep on going or they're going to give up. They're going to be discouraged. So please help me. And he felt in that moment the God who sees and hears and knows met him. And let him know that it's not his dependence on his education or or civil rights principles, but it's dependence on God that's going to allow him to do the things that he's called to do. And one of the things that he does is he thinks about a verse from Jeremiah chapter 8, where the prophet is looking at the injustices in his own time with great sadness. He says, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Is there nobody to come and bring healing to my people who are suffering? And then Dr. King said, you know what? Our slave foreparents did something amazing. Even amidst all the injustices that they were going through, what they did is look back over the centuries, and they took Jeremiah's question mark, and they straightened it out into an exclamation point. And they said, there is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And there's a verse in there. It's printed on your bulletin. It says, sometimes I feel discouraged. And listen, there will be times during this project that you feel discouraged. There's certainly been times along these lines you're thinking about issues of race and justice and you are discouraged. But the song says, sometimes I feel discouraged. And I think that my work's in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin sick soul. And that balm is given by the one God who sees and hears and knows his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees. You're the God who hears. And you are the God who knows what troubles our hearts. And so, Father, we look to you to guide us, to continue to give us strength, to do the things you've called us to do. Lord, we're so grateful for the, just the opportunity to learn together about the implications of this great book of Philemon that's so often neglected. But Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit so that we wouldn't give up, so that we would continue, that we would see the gospel of the kingdom of God flourish in new and exciting ways in this city and in this world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.